Before we get started, I do need to issue a bit of a trigger warning for this episode. We're going to be talking about issues of child abuse, uh, children being taken from their parents. And while there is a happy ending, this is a hope-filled episode like always. Um, If those topics are going to be hard for you to hear about, this might be an episode to skip. But if you are hanging out with us, let's get started. I got my business degree. I founded my business. You know, I did everything right according to society standards. And then we decided to start a family. And I remember having that first baby and thinking, you know, I did all this work. I'm a successful, intelligent, independent woman. And now I'm sucking snot and wiping butts all day. (laughs) And like, really, God, you know, this is your grand plan. Then everything got taken away from me. And at that point, you know, I could care less what those expensive pieces of paper on the wall said. I could care less what career I had. I could care less about anything. I just wanted to be a mom. If God has called you to be a parent, then he has called you to something amazing and terrifying and messy and stressful and isolating. But I am here to tell you that you are not alone. I'm Summer Shepherd, and this is No Seriously, How Do I Do This? Do you ever hear stories and you think to yourself, that is a nightmare, like my greatest nightmare? That's what I thought the first time I met Rachel. <laughs> it's, it's nothing against Rachel. Rachel's amazing, but her story is harrowing. And I want you to hear in it the details of what happened, sure, but the hope that prevailed despite circumstances, her faith in Jesus, and how God worked everything together for his good, protected her, protected her family. But I'm going to let Rachel tell you her story herself. So Rachel, when I met you in Nashville, Mm -hmm. not too long ago now, you came over to the table I was sitting at and we were introduced and you had this incredible story that I sat there and I listened to you tell it and my mouth was just hanging open and I just knew I had to get you on because I knew I wanted the world to hear your story, both the hope and the encouragement of it, but also the the cautionary tale of it, et cetera. And so I don't even think I'm going to try to set this up. If you just want to start by telling us who you are, a little bit about your family and what happened. Thank you so much for having me on, Summer. And as you said, the story is crazy. I am married to my husband of 19 years. I have two boys. Their names are David and Lucas. They are now six and eight years old. I'm originally from Brazil. I came to this country when I was two years old after my father passed away in Brazil from a car accident. So my mom was a widow and a single mother at the age of 28. You know, we came here with nothing, but the church sponsored us, found us a home, and America became my home. I graduated and went to college, got a master's degree, started my business with my husband, cybersecurity. And then things drastically changed summer of 2015 after the birth of my second son, Lucas. And that's when I woke up to him screaming at about four o'clock in the morning. At this point, he was with a nanny, an overnight nanny, because I have seizures, I have epilepsy, and one of the main triggers is sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep. So four o'clock in the morning, I figured she was changing him or feeding him. He stopped crying. A few minutes later, he starts again. Then he stops. Then he starts again. So about 30 minutes went by. So I finally got up. I went to the room. She had him swaddled inside the crib had her hand like on his chest and was kind of rocking him back and forth, shushing him. He was not having it. And that kid was screaming. And she finally picked him up, put him in this burnt position on her shoulder. And he stopped screaming. I'm like, okay. 
you know, won't go in. Did anything happen? And she showed me the empty bottle, said, I just fed him. He's really gassy. Said, okay, fair enough. Babies get gassy. You know, he's seven weeks old. At this point, my husband is out of town on a business trip. My older son, 20 months old, is sleeping directly across the hallway, and I have a screaming seven-week-old baby. So I tell her he's obviously not settling down. You know, why don't you just leave, and I'll take it from here. So she left that morning, and I unswaddled him looking for rashes, leakage, you know, anything that I could think of. No external signs, any physical signs. So I gave him skin to skin, and he fell asleep on me. I just figured, okay, he wanted your mommy. A few hours go by. It's seven o'clock. I hear screaming again. I'm like, okay, you're hungry. All right. I go try to nurse him and he would not latch on whatsoever. He just kept making these weird faces and I was jaded, I guess, you know, she told me he was gassy. So I'm like nursing strike, colic, you know, what is wrong with this kid? Six hours later, nonstop crying, would not eat, would not nap. I could not put the kid down. Anytime I would hold him up like this, he was fine, like on my shoulder. If I put him down, he would just start screaming. And in my head, I'm like, do you just want to be held? Right? Like, you know, I had no idea what was going on. So I called my mom, like, mom, I need you. Please come here. Help. I need to take this kid to the doctor. I don't know what's going on. Call the pediatrician's office. And the receptionist tells me that he doesn't have any availability till three o'clock that afternoon. I said, no, my kid has been crying since four o'clock in the morning. He's not eating. I need to see somebody. So she says, okay, and then take him to the emergency room. So everybody at that point, my mom, my 20-month-old son, my seven-week-old son, and myself all hop into the car, go to the emergency room. As we know, baby's left to sleep in that car, right? As soon as he gets in that car, no crying, sleeping, like, great, here you go, overreactive <laughs> mom going to the emergency room. <laughs> but I get there, tell all the symptoms, doctor does come see me right away, and he tells me to lay the baby down on the bed. Then he walks away. Okay, probably going to tell me, give him Benadryl and go home. But he stops right at the doorway, about 10 feet away, and he is just laser focused on my son. And there's about five people in the room. Everybody's quiet. This is weird. And it goes about 30 seconds. Then he walks back towards the bed and he goes straight to my son's head right behind his left ear. Says, Did you feel this? No. He grabs my finger, makes me touch it. Like, you feel that bulge? Like, yeah. So that's fluid that's leaking from his brain. Oh. Said, okay, what does that mean? Like it could be spinal cerebral fluid or it can be blood. We need to go do a CT scan right now, see what's going on. When he says that, about 10 people rush into that room and they're putting probes on him, wires on him. You know, they raise up the rails and they just start bolting down that hallway to the CT room. And on our way there, his right arm starts twitching and those nurses really start running. And that was the first thing in my mind, like, oh my gosh, left side of the brain, right arm twitching, he's having a seizure. Like, I gave it to him. It's hereditary. I'll say a little prayer right there. I'm like, God, please spare my son from having to live with this like I did. Go to the CT room. Results come back. The doctors call me into the back room where all the monitors are. And he says, Ms. Bruno, this is very serious. Okay. Like, it's a cranial fracture. And the fluid that's leaking is blood. The brain hates blood. We need to go do emergency surgery right now, see if we can drain the blood and fix the fracture and save your son. So he's giving me all the liabilities or against blood transfusions. I'm like, I don't care what you have to do to my son, save my son. So off they go, wheeling my baby off into the emergency room or to the operating room at this point. And I'm in shock. Like I went from gassy baby to now 
my son is in brain surgery, right? And my husband is still out of town, out of state, in a meeting, has no idea what's going on. My mom is there. My 20-month-old son is there bouncing off the walls. And I'm just texting everybody. I'm like, I don't know what just happened. Everybody start crying. So me and my mom there, you know, four hours go by. Doctor comes in, Ms. Bruno. He is doing well, clinically well, as far as we're concerned. We were able to drain the blood and fix the fracture. I'm like, okay, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? We really don't know. You know. Due to his young age, we don't even know whether he's going to survive the next 48 hours. Oh, my goodness. We have him in a medically induced coma right now due to all the seizures he started having after the procedure. So he's being monitored, but he is stable. I will take you up to his room. So I go upstairs, you know, and I walk into this very cold room. You know, if you've ever been in some kind of intensive care unit, it's freezing, all these glass doors, the machines beeping, and I see my baby seemingly lifeless, just laying there. He has gauze wrapped all around his head, has tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine. And I say another prayer right there. My God, I don't care if I have to dedicate the rest of my life to taking care of my son, I will. Just don't take him away from me. And I heard the Holy Spirit at that moment say, he's mine. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from me. I said, you're right, God. He is yours. There's no better place for him to be than in your hands. So I had to surrender my son's life to God at that point. And amazingly enough, the peace that surpasses all understanding filled me in that moment. I had peace. And I immediately went into logistics mode, right? My mom was there. My younger son was there. I obviously wasn't leaving the hospital that night. So I call my friend, take my mom and my son home, sit down, take a breath. Then somebody knocks on the door, slides the door open. It's a man in a uniform, a police uniform, lady with a clipboard. Says, Miss Bruno, can we speak to you? Sure. Okay. Says, what happened to your son? was worse than getting struck in the head by a bullet. Okay, will you help us? We want to help you figure out how this happened to your son. So at that point, you know, the image bullet to the head, are you accusing this woman of having tried to kill my son? And will you help us? Like if you're asking me for help, you obviously don't think it's me. (laughs) So I sit down with them, tell them the whole saga from four o'clock in the morning till there we are at the hospital. It's about eight o'clock at night now. And the social worker asked me, do you have any other children? I do. Where are they? Their ages? I tell her. Again, these people are here to help me. I have nothing to hide. It's like, is it okay if we go see him? He's probably asleep by now. We're not going to wake him. We just want to make sure he's okay. I said, okay. And off she leaves. The police officer asked me where my husband is. I said, he's on his way from the airport to the hospital. He asked me if I'll wait for the detectives, which I did. The detectives show up at about midnight. And they interview me till two o'clock in the morning. So I'd been up since four. It's now two. So nearly 24 hours without sleep. You know, my son is in a coma. I'm just retelling the story over and over. At no point, you know, did anybody indicate that this was some sort of criminal investigation or that I was under investigation or that they were going to take my children away. I go to bed. I wake up the next morning. About 10 o'clock, not the next morning, that same day, I wake up at 10 o'clock and my husband is just staring at me. My first instinct is to look at the bed. Like the baby's there. He's alive. What happened? Says they took David. 
David is my 20 month old son who was asleep at my mom's house. I'm like, what do you mean they took David? Where? Who? Like they lied to me. I said, yeah, they showed up at your mom's house at two o'clock in the morning and they took him. So I immediately called my mom, like what happened? Like they came here, they walked through the house, opened the refrigerator, saw if there was food, asked where David was. I told her, she walks in the room, turns on the light, wakes him up, asked me to undress him. She checks for any signs of abuse. There were none. And then she tells me we're taking him. My mom's like, no, you're not. She says, if you don't give him to us, we're going to arrest you. We have three police officers standing right there. Nobody says anything. My mom's like, okay, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? And the social worker, no, he's going to go to foster care and you're not going to be able to care for him because you're going to have a criminal record. So my poor mom, yeah. (laughs) And my dad trying to call attorneys at two o'clock in the morning. Of course, nobody's answering their phone. My son is noticing the commotion and my mom in her mind thought it would be less traumatic to just give him to the social worker as opposed to having them forcefully rip him away from her arms. Yeah. Right. So she gives him to the social worker and he's kicking and screaming, won't go to the car. She has to go in there and buckle him in and off they drive in the middle of the night, not telling us where they're taking him, what is going on. I mean, we have no idea what's going on. So here we are again, my husband and I at the hospital, social services won't answer their phone. Supervisor doesn't answer. We don't know where our son is. I start calling lawyers. I call about 10 different lawyers until I find one that will talk to me. I go to his office that same day and I'm like, where is my son and where do I go get him? And he tells me, sit down. You have no idea what you're in for. I'm like, what are you talking about? They can't just come and take my son. Like, yes, they can. Like what? I said, listen to me. What happened to your son was criminal. You are facing 15 years in jail and a $100,000 bail if they decide to charge you. You're not going to get your kids back. I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't do this. Like, what happened to innocent until proven guilty? What happened to our constitution? What about the nanny? And he says, they may investigate her. They may not. This is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. I'm like, what other law is there? (laughs) And he says they can do whatever they deem is in the best interest of the child. Like, how is it in the best interest of my child to take him at two o'clock in the morning? You know, then I just start going off on him and he just slams his fist down on the table. And he's like, listen to me. I am not going to go in that courtroom and ask them to give the kids back to you. If I do that, the judge, the social workers is going to show the judge this, the criminal report. And they're going to tell the judge, your honor. This woman is undergoing a criminal investigation. You are placing the children's lives at risk by giving them back to their mother. If that happens, they're going to be placed in foster care and they can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. And they will make it last longer than six months. And I'm like, jail, adoption, uh, what, like, what are you talking about? What What just just happened? happened? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, your saving grace is that your husband was out of state when this happened. So legally speaking, he wasn't even at the crime scene. We're going to ask the judge to give sole custody to your husband. That way they don't even risk going into foster care. But if the judge grants that, they're going to kick you out of the house. So what choice did I have? Right? Go in there and fight for my supposed rights (laughs) and risk my children being placed in foster care with strangers 
or be with their father and, you know, put myself through the ringer. So I told them, you know, do whatever the heck you want to me, but leave my kids alone. So I go back to the hospital. I tell my husband what this lawyer just told me and everybody's in shock, right? Horrified. Like this can't be happening. This isn't legal. I'm like, yeah, he says it. Apparently it is. So he tells me to prep for the hearing, which will be three days later, to get character letters from people that know me, to, you know, contact as many people as I can. And I do. I got 23 character letters. We go to the hearing and I'm just praying. I'm like, this isn't going to happen. Like, Lord, please, like expose this, show these judges the truth. You know, these social workers, this is not going to happen. We go into that courtroom and I'm thinking it's going to be at least like Judge Judy, right? (laughs) You speak, you speak, (laughs) what happened here, what happened there? And when I get in that courtroom, the nanny's not there. The social worker's not there. The police officer's not there. The detectives aren't there. Nobody is on trial but me. So we walk in and the lawyers start exchanging, you know, their legalese. I'm waiting for the judge, you know, to call my name and ask me what happened. And next thing I hear my name is any objections? No, but (laughs) I have any objections to the children being placed with their father. But no, he goes around the entire room. Nobody objects except for social services, to which he asked why. And they said, we never got to interview the father, so we don't know whether he's fit or not. So at this point, court goes into recess. They kick us out of the courtroom. And I'm with my lawyer. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what? What? Like, (laughs) what are we supposed to do now? And my lawyer just hands me a bunch of papers from the court report. He's like, here, go through this. See if you can find anything that was taken out of context. Any lies, you know, and I'll go back in there and I'll deal with that. Now, at this point, Rachel, if I may, you say you're in this courtroom and no one else was there. Did no one think to look at the nanny? At this point, when I was looking at that court report, the nanny had been spoken to once. And (laughs) coincidentally, her one-year-old daughter had a bruise under her eye when they went to go speak to her. But she told the social worker that her daughter fell off the bed when she was sleeping and that my son was perfectly fine when she left the house. And they believed her. That's really all that happened. But they didn't interview her until after they had already seized my children. So there we are. And my attorney comes back. You know, I don't know what he said in there, but he's got it, got his point across. We go back into the courtroom. The judge overrules and says the children will be placed with their father. Mrs. Bruno, you have 24 hours to vacate your home. You are court ordered to take child abuse classes, parenting classes, and individual counseling. A caseworker will be contacting you regarding visitation. Court is adjourned. So in 10 minutes, you know, my whole life was taken, was ripped away from me, right? They took my kids away. They took my house away. They took my husband away. And I'm there crying with my mom and my lawyer's like, I told you this is what's going to happen. I'm like, I know. I still don't believe this is what happened. (laughs) So I'm like, where am I supposed to go now? I said, well. As long as your son is in the hospital, it's a monitored facility. They can't kick you out. So I said, okay. So I go home, get rid of everything in my house, leave it at my neighbor's house, go to the hospital. And I sleep at the hospital for about two days. 
until my mom went to my church and asked the pastor's wife to come pray for us. She came to the hospital. She looked at my son. You know, he was still in sleeping. He was still with the drugs. She prayed for him, looked at me, and she said, I've been praying, and God told me you're coming home with me. Now, Rachel, at this point, (laughs) was everyone in your life on your side, your husband, your mom, your lawyer, I, I'm not quite sure what I think about his response in all this, uh, your, your pastor, your church, did everyone believe you? Or was there anyone who you felt was like, well, maybe she could have done this? Amazingly enough, everybody did believe me. Like I was extremely blessed. You know, my husband never, ever, ever once doubted my character. And it was extremely hard for him to not defend me. You know, that's what it, the lawyers had to tell him. You cannot defend your wife. If you go in there and defend your wife, they're going to say that you're putting her interests above your children's interests. So you just be quiet. (laughs) But the character letters, right? I was able to get 23 character letters in that weekend. And some of those character letters were people that I hadn't spoken to in 30 years. Were people that met me when I was two years old, when I first came to this country. Right? And they were part of my family, my church family. So... Yes, God put amazing people in my life, and they were there to support me the entire time. The only people who didn't believe me were the the doctors and the social workers and law enforcement. <laughs> so what did that do for you? Because I think as moms, we have this view of ourselves and our identity. We're like, okay, I am child of God. I am wife. I am mother. I am employee, employer. You have these these structures that you build that help define who you are for you. But now they're telling you who you are, which is in conflict with how you see yourself. They're saying, no, you are criminal. No, you are bad. No, you are an unfit mother. What was that doing to you? What was going through your head? It was crazy. You know, in that court ordered counseling that I had to take, the individual counseling, the psychiatrist asked me that exact question. Like, so how are you dealing with this? You know, how is this affecting you? How is this affecting your identity? And I thought about it for a while and I'm like, it really hasn't (laughs) affected my identity. Like, yes, I am a wife. Yes, I am a mother. But first and foremost, I'm the daughter of the king. And nobody can take that away from me. You know, he knows my character. He knows me by name. And I, that's who I am, right? Ultimately, that's who I am. And a psychiatrist, you know, jotting down the notes. That's an interesting perspective. (laughs) 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 But, you know, looking back in a way, like I said, I got my business degree. I founded my business. You know, I did everything right according to society standards, right? And then we decided to start a family. And I remember having that first baby and thinking, okay, you know, I did all this work. I'm a successful, intelligent, independent woman, and now I'm sucking snot and wiping butts all day. (laughs) 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 And like, really, God, you know, this is your grand plan? Then everything got taken away from me. And at that point, you know, I could care less what those expensive pieces of paper on the wall said. I could care less what career I had. I could care less about anything. I just wanted to be a mom which is one of the greatest callings and the greatest jobs you will ever have in your life. How long were you separated from your children? 
Well, they kicked me out and I was separated. They gave me seven hours of monitored visitation a week with both my children. This phase lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Wow. Wow. So what happened? How did they finally, how did the case resolve itself? Well, on that 40th day, we had a hearing. And my attorney at this point was like, you know, the criminal case is still open. The status of your investigation hasn't changed. Don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. So I told my husband, like he's telling us to not go today. My husband said, I don't care what he says, we're going. So we go to the courthouse. And about two hours later, my attorney calls me, where are you? I'm at the courthouse. Like, okay, on my way, might be able to do something. Hangs up on me. Like, okay, great. <laughs> start texting everybody again. Everybody start praying. I don't know what's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Now, during these 40 days, I did have a church in Brazil. You know, my father passed away in Brazil. He was a pastor in Brazil. And this church knew him. And this pastor had his entire congregation, about 5,000 people, stand up in church one day and said, everybody, point your hands to the north. And we are going to pray for this family. We are going to shield this family. And it was at the beginning of the 40th day. It was on the first day. On this 40th day, <laughs> we were at the hearing. <laughs> and my attorney comes. And he's you not know, go hug him. And he's like, don't hug me. I can't make you any promises. He walks into the courtroom, comes back out with a stack of papers. He's like, sign this, initial this. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm signing, what I'm initialing. I'm just trusting God at that point. I'm praying. I'm in the spirit. About three hours go by. He comes back with a stack of papers, 700 pages. He's like, okay, here's the deal. If you're willing to sign this document the way it's written, there's nothing in here admitting guilt. There's nothing in here saying that you did this. Just the court report, the social worker's narrative, the police investigation, the medical records, they will let you go home today. At that point, if they told me to cut off my leg, I would have done it. <laughs> I just wanted to be home with my kids. I signed the paper and he told me, like, I've been doing this for 23 years. I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. You definitely have a higher power working for you. Mm -hmm. I said, Amen. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> So I went home that day, you know, to be back with my children, at least living full time at home. The case remained open for six months where a social worker would come to our house every month and write up a report. It was her recommendation at the end of the six months that the case be closed. So it was closed, but I had this fire up my butt. Like I cannot be quiet knowing everything that I know and everything that I witnessed. Right. In that child abuse class, I thought I was going to be in there with a bunch of alcoholics, domestic violence, you know, tattooed pierced up drunk people. <laughs> and when I get there, everybody was in the same boat that I was. Like there were bathtub accidents, there were park accidents, there were just weird scenarios like a 15-year-old posting naked pictures of herself on Instagram. And her father grounding her, taking away the car, you know, doing everything he can. He's going through the scroll, she's posting naked pictures of herself on her friend's account. So he gets home, he spanks her. And she calls her biological father, who's a criminal in jail. And he tells her, you want to get rid of him? Call the police and tell him that, they, that he hit you. She does that. The police come. They arrest the stepfather. They take away all the other four biological children. They're all placed in foster care. And this man is now in this child abuse class with me, fighting to get the rest of his children. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, why? Why is this going on? And 
little by little, you know, pieces being revealed, nothing new under the sun, you know, follow the money. Turns out there's actual a law called the Adoptions and Safe Families Act, which gives each state federal funding for every child that is placed in foster care. Hmm. So when my son was taken, right, at two o'clock in the morning and we didn't know where he was, he was placed in the county's children's shelter. And they released him to my mom because she was a public school teacher, mandated reporter. And before I even had that hearing, they asked my mom if she would adopt my kids. And my mom was like, no, we give them back to their mom who they belong. And the social worker, well, we don't know what the judge is going to order. If they order the removal of the children, will you adopt them? My mom's like, what happens if I don't? They'll go to foster care. So my mom signs the papers, the adoption papers, before I even had a hearing. Social worker hands her a check for $680 per child and tells her you'll be receiving these checks, $680 a month per child. They will qualify for Medicaid. They will qualify for food stamps. They will qualify for this. And my mom's like, I don't want your money. Social worker, well, this is how we help the families. And my mom is like, can I save it for the lawyers? (laughs) 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 So I'm like, God, you know, one, somebody once called me during this whole process and they said, Rachel, one word keeps coming to my mind and it's repent. I'm like, okay. You know, kind of felt like Job at that moment, (laughs) like (laughs) telling me I did something to deserve this. But I knew this person, I knew they meant well, and I just took it to God later that night. You know, I'm like, okay, God, who sinned? <laughs> and the Holy Spirit told me that night, like nothing, my daughter, you know, what you're witnessing right now is just the broken world we live in. It's about the destruction of the family, which is what Satan has been trying to do since the day I created it. Husband against wife, brother against brother. And... I will use your story. You know, what you're going through right now is not in vain. I have your children. This will pass. Trust me. I said, okay. You know, and I'm like, the destruction of the family. I could see it. That's totally what was going on. In this child abuse class, nobody had intentionally abused their child. You know, there were accidents. And yes, some people had made stupid decisions, but nobody was abusing their child. And parental rights were terminated. You know, people, children were being adopted. Siblings were being separated. And I'm like, wow. So from that point on, my perspective completely shifted, you know, from why me to why not me, right, in this case. And I began praying for all these families that were in those child abuse classes with me. Like, I know God. I have hope. I have Jesus. What about all these people that don't? You know, and like you said, I have my family, I have my friends, nobody ever doubted me. Whereas so many other people, their family would flip on them in a heartbeat because of that money. That little check was really enticing for people. And it was sad, you know, it was horrible. So it changed me, it changed my faith, you know, it made me draw near to God, closer and closer to God. Of course, I kept asking why, you know, why did this happen? Like, why did this have to happen? Knows what am I supposed to be learning through this? What am, what is the purpose of this? And the song kept playing in my car every day when I would go see my son in the hospital. I'm like, is this thing broken? Right on repeat? Like it wasn't. I'm like okay, so just listen to the song, and it's called "All I Once Held Dear," sung by Joseph Garlington, and it's based on Philippians, Philippians three, verses twenty, I believe, and it says, "All I once held dear." 
built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own, all I once thought gain, I now count as loss compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. And I just started following in that car. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is why. <laughs> this is why it's to know Jesus. It's to know Jesus. And who am I? You know, to know you in your suffering, to become like you, Lord. Feel this small. And that car listening to that song. And it just renewed my faith, my hope, my strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. I am a child of God. I know Jesus. Thank God that I know Jesus. And my eternal hope is in Jesus. If my children do get taken away for some whatever reason, Lord, I trust you. If I do go to jail, if there's somebody in that jail cell that needs to hear about you, Lord, here I am. So it was just about surrendering, right? Surrendering one's life and giving it to God and trusting God. You know, growing up in church, we hear these Bible verses a lot. You know, His grace is enough. I can do all things through Christ. All things work for the good of those who love him. You know, all these little Bible verses. And I'm, I'm like, but are they really? You know, they sound pretty, but does it really? <laughs> and I had to live it. I can tell you that it is. It is the absolute truth. And having that personal relationship with God is very important. <laughs> now, did the case ever find resolution? Did they ever officially absolve you of any guilt, find out who did it? What, did, what played out after that? Yeah, I mean, I was never officially charged with anything. So, you know, there is no record of that. They only investigated the nanny that one time. And she did take a polygraph, which came back inconclusive. She refused to take it again, which are within her rights. I took it. I passed, <laughs> but it was never shown in court. So the family court case that was closed, I found a civil rights attorney to sue Orange County, L.A. County, social services, the sheriff's department, the hospitals, you know, all these people that were involved. And the discovery is, was really damning, you know, a lot of damning evidence where the social workers had discussed prior to even speaking to me, they exchanged text messages where one of the social workers is t telling her supervisor what's going on. And the supervisor replies back, OMG, you think it was the nanny? And the supervisor or the social worker replies back, no, think mom before ever speaking to me. So they had already made up their minds. You know, it was really clear in the discovery and in that case that they had already made up their minds. So we settled with them. We sued them. We settled in December of 2018 for $1.49 million. And it wasn't the money. You know, there's no amount of money that could ever repay us for what they put us through. But it's the only way to get government agencies back is to get them where it hurts in their pocket. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the resolution, you know, I guess that gives me some sort of credibility as far as the world is concerned, right? And I can share my story, but, you know, nobody got fired. Nobody was ever jailed. Nobody was ever really disciplined for what happened. So I just use my voice now to let people know what happens behind the closed doors of family court. You know, it's not like what we think of court. 
And the reality is, yeah, no amount of money paid would cover the price that you and your family already paid and not just you, but your children. How are they? I know they were so little at the time, but is there any part of them that remembers this? Do they carry any of this with them still? Absolutely. I mean, my 20 month old son, right? They seized him at two o'clock in the morning and we didn't find out until we sued them that when they took him to the children's shelter, they gave him 13 vaccines without our consent. They forced him through a full skeletal survey without our consent. They gave him an anal wink test, which is for sexual abuse when there weren't even any allegations of sexual abuse. And my son was not the same. You know, when we got him back, he was pinching himself. He would hurt himself. He was really traumatized, you know, and being that my mom is the one who picked him up from the shelter. He rejected me for probably about a year. He's like, I don't want you, mommy. I don't want you. Right. I want to go back to my grandma's house. And I speak about this in my book. Like there was one point where I couldn't, I couldn't take it. Right. I was giving him a bath one day and he just kept saying, I don't want you. You know, he kept throwing fists. He kept hitting me. And I left him. I went to the bathroom and cried. And I said, God, I can't do this. Right. I'm, I'm building a wall against my three-year-old son because the words hurt. Right. I know he's a victim. I'm a victim too. I didn't do this. Right. And the Holy Spirit, yes, you are a victim, but you're the mom. You're the, you're the adult in the situation. Like, okay. What do I do? Go talk to him. Like, really? Like, he's not too young. Go talk to him. So I get him out of the bathtub, go to his room, sit him down on my lap. I'm like, do you remember when your auntie had to come take care of you? And the first words out of his mouth, why did you leave? So he knew. Oh. And I'm like, okay, I got my phone. I got all the pictures of his brother in the hospital. And I'm like, look, this is what happened to Lucas. And they thought that mommy did this to him. He looks up at me. You never heard us, mommy. I said, I know. But they thought that mommy did this to him. And if I did it to him, I was going to do it to you. And that's why mommy had to leave. It's not because I wanted you. It's not because I didn't love you. Right. They, these people just made a really bad choice, you know, but I love you. None of this was your fault, David, but we have to forgive them. Right. We forgive the nanny. We forgive the police officers. We forgive the doctors. We forgive everybody that did this. Prayed with him, but we're not going to let them get away with it. We're going to fight. He looks at me. You're going to hit them, mommy. You're like, where it hurts. <laughs> That's right. Like, we're going to hit them with a pile of papers. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> but that conversation with my son was a complete 180. You know, from that moment on, he just needed the closure, right? And to know that he wasn't abandoned, you know, that I didn't just leave him, that we loved him and forgiveness. And when we got the petition, we got the final document I showed him. I'm like, look, here's how we're going to fight them. I signed it in front of him. We prayed over it with him. He put it in the envelope. We mailed it. So he became part of the story. You know, he's eight years old today. And he does. He does know everything that happened. But he's a renewed, completely different child. Thank God. You know, God did restore everything that the locusts tried to destroy. Mm. Now, what about Lucas? How is he today? Lucas is now six years old. And that baby is a miracle. He's a miracle baby. He's in first grade. He can read. He can write. He can jump. He can scream. He's a totally normal <laughs> six-year-old boy. But he does have like a lime size of his brain is missing. 
you know, when the brain came into contact with the blood, it atrophied the brain. So they had to suction that out. And the right side of the brain took over those functions. You know, he did have to have physical therapy for about a year. He had reconstructive surgery when he was two years old. And the neurosurgeon, you know, he told us, he's like, if I was looking only at this image where it shows, you know, this part of the brain missing, I would be really concerned about this patient right now. But seeing him right here live in person, I have no concerns whatsoever. <laughs> so he has reached all his milestones. He's perfect. You know, he still has a big scar across his head. And he doesn't really ask about it, which is interesting. You know, I want to... I want to see how it ends up with Lucas, <laughs> but he is, he's perfectly healthy, normal, loving, cheerful little boy. Praise God. And I remember, you know, you sharing there how you had gone to these classes and you were expecting to see one thing that even in your mind, you know, the narrative went a certain way. And I think there's that part of us that's conditioned to go there in our minds. Like, well, clearly, if they're here, they must have deserved it. They must have done something wrong. It's a certain kind of person. Now, do you feel like, was there any part of this? Of course, I wouldn't say it happened. It had to happen so that you could get a broader perspective of the world and let your own (laughs) blinders fall off, etc. But would you say that was something that came of this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I am a voice now for the biological parents who have gone through this. You know, you Google search foster care. There's a bunch of organizations that will help the foster families that will help, you know, workshops. How can you foster? How can you help? But there's nobody speaking up for the biological families, right? Like the one question that's never asked is, should these children have been removed to begin with? Yeah. And in my case, I mean, can you imagine what a social worker would tell a potential foster family? You know, Mm -hmm. this infant baby suffered a cranial fracture in the care of his mother. Will you please help this baby and his brother? Any sane family, of course. Yes, get this witch away from these kids, right? I would have no way of defending myself. They have no way of vetting me. So it's a really broken system. You know, it's really broken. And unfortunately, I don't know who's going to remove the veil, how it's going to be exposed, because there is a lot of different tentacles in this system. So it will really take an act of God to bring it to light. Well, thank you, Rachel, for the work that you're doing. And I'm so, so sorry for what you and your family had to endure in order for this work to be done. But I know that God has you in this position for such a time as this. And I'm grateful that you are taking up the call to serve and to help. And we'll be praying for you. We'll be praying for your family. I don't think the the scars of this, whether they be physical for your son or emotional for everyone, heal completely. But we'll be praying and we'll be keeping you guys in our prayers. Thank you so much. Yes. (laughs) Your story is incredible, Rachel. And I can only imagine how difficult it is to share, let alone live. And so I appreciate you taking the time with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And, you know, God... God writes good stories. <laughs> and it was by his grace that we got through this. Absolutely. Speaking of stories, Rachel wrote a book about her experience. It's called Fractured Hope. If you want to learn more, then you can find that book on Amazon. And she expressed to me after this interview that her hope, her desire, her prayer is that she can continue using her story 
and found a nonprofit that serves families who were wrongly separated from their children with legal help and resources and even housing for those that need it. What a beautiful picture of how God uses our most devastating and harrowing traumatic experiences, and He can redeem even those for His good. And I love sharing those stories here on this podcast. If you are someone who would like to learn more about Rachel or connect more with this community, search for No Seriously, How Do I Do This on Facebook, like, follow along, and of course, subscribe if you have not already to this podcast. If you wouldn't mind reviewing it as well, it helps other people to find it. And if you want to connect more with me, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email to summer at seriouslyhow.com. And as you go forward today and every day, do not forget that you are loved and you are not alone.